Hello and welcome to the Revenue Architect podcast. My guest this week is Kit Wetzler, who's VP of Sales at Big Eye. And the reason I think everyone's going to really enjoy listening to Kit is that he's been the first sales leader at a number of startups. Kit, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Kit, love to just get a quick background on Big Eye, where you're currently at. What does it do? Kind of what stage is the company? And and how did you uh, get uh, involved with the company? Yeah, um, I joined Big Eye about six months ago. Um, Big Eye does data observability. We're looking at the consistency and quality of large data stores. The idea being that uh, most companies don't adequately evaluate both the availability and uh, consistency and quality of their data. So uh, we help with that. And yeah, we've been around for uh, about three years. I joined six months ago to scale the revenue team. And Kit, this isn't the first time that you've joined as kind of the first sales leader. I know you came up through big companies, but then made that transition to to early stage uh, sales leadership a few years ago. What prompted that change and how did you get into it? Yeah, I mean, I I came up through uh, the sales ranks at Citrix, uh, ran a fairly large region there, uh, about 20 AEs, and it was uh, a fun time. Certainly wanted some more influence into uh, how things were run. Uh, Ended up leaving Citrix and starting a company uh, with a friend of mine. And that turned out to be a little bit too much responsibility. Uh, So um, went back to AWS for some time and then ran a region at Pulse Secure when I found found Armory. Um, Armory needed a sales leader who was both technical and could figure out how to sell their product and then help them transition away from founder-led sales to scaling out an enterprise sales team. Yeah, that transition um, from founder-led sales, I think every first sales leader uh, has to deal with that. What are the lessons you've learned from from coming in as a first sales leader and uh, taking over from the founder, taking away that baby? Turns out that founders are really good at earning credibility with their with their buyers. You go in and you're like, "Hey, I solved this problem for some big company, and now I've created a solution for it by myself." And uh, we've got these ten guys in a garage, and we're going to build something awesome out of this. And that story tends to resonate with people who are willing to take some risks. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't scale because it requires a huge amount of personal touch and uh, the founders um, being really in tune with the exact things that they're building and being able to shape the roadmap. What people are oftentimes betting on when they buy from a founder is that the product will evolve into something that's useful to them as they as they grow as well. And when you get to enter, when you start to scale out an enterprise sales team, you can no longer uh, make those promises. You no longer have that instant credibility of having solved that problem. And you've got to figure out how to manage sales cycles in a, a scalable and uh, predictable way, which is usually not the case with founder-led sales. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know how um, you know founders are great at selling to kind of early adopters, early believers. Like you said, they're buying the as much the founder as they're buying into the product, and that personal touch, that ability to influence the roadmap. So you need that. I'll go and build it. But like you said, it really doesn't scale. You mentioned there, like developing a more predictable sales motion as you coming coming in as a first sales leader. How do you figure out which processes to build? I mean, there's so many things you can do in sales. Like, what's your kind of playbook and 
And, and what, what have you found works consistently? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I do is try to establish predictability. And the way I establish predictability is trying to use the same language to talk about deals so we know exactly what means what. So that's defining a very tight and uh, a very simple uh, sales playbook that has stages that a deal is in, um, very specific exit criteria for those deals so that when you say a deal is in planning, I know exactly what planning means, that there are certain exit criteria from discovery to planning, and then certain exit criteria from planning to your proof of concept or negotiation. Um, it's important to talk about deals in the same way, using the same terms, the same language, so that uh, you can establish predictability. Uh, otherwise, you just don't know where deals are in the sales cycle. Yeah, you mentioned that um, moving from discovery into planning into proof of concept. Planning's not a stage that you know we hear about very much, but I know it's one that you've used. Can you tell us a bit more about what what does it mean to go from discovery into planning and into proof of concept? Maybe dig a bit there on the exit criteria. Sure. One of my philosophies is that I at this at an early stage in a company, you want to know about everyone you talk to. So what oftentimes happens uh, when you transition from founder-led sales to enterprise sales is that your salespeople go out and talk to a whole bunch of people, and then they do some qualification and then start entering into the CRM these uh, companies that pass that qualification. So you lose out on learning about a whole bunch of uh, companies that they've spoken to and then determine quickly that they weren't a fit. But Maybe they're a fit in six months. Maybe they're a fit in a year. Maybe they grow or change or come back. And you lose a lot of that fidelity. So I really like having like a holding pen stage. I call that discovery. You put everyone you ever talked to in a discovery phase in the CRM, uh, trying to develop good muscles around uh, keeping track of all the contacts we have. For then when I want to understand when something's getting a little more serious, when you've uh, you know gone on a couple of dates and um, you're ready to start having uh, talking about what an actual purchase might look like, um, you've discovered use cases, you've figured out who the stakeholders are, you're starting to talk to uh, someone who has signing authority. Um, that's when I, I put things into the planning stage. So we know that things are getting a little serious. That's really interesting. So you're really figuring out the, you know, the pain maybe the impact and importantly, the decision-making process, you're figuring it out very early in the sales process. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. I, I feel like that's necessary because in an early stage startup, you might only have a few SEs that can actually run uh, proofs of concept or proofs of value. And you don't want to invest in too many people. What, what happens a lot of the time is that in early stage startups, it's really exciting to get someone to actually start playing with the product. But without knowing whether or not they actually have the capability of buying it, it can be a huge waste of time, a huge drain on resources. And yeah, you might get feedback from a bunch of people, but um, it really depends on, on your product, whether you have more of a product-led growth motion where you can get value to a single person and they can go off and do their own thing, or if it's something that an organization is going to have to adopt and uh, adopt as a platform. And when that happens, you just can't do proof of concepts with everyone. That's so uh, insightful. Like Kind of like you want to know the person who's playing is going to be the person who's paying. A lot of salespeople you know, will demo to, to the champion, but then realize that that person's just kicking the tires or doesn't have the authority. And and then someone else shows up very late in the sales cycle, and then the deal just stalls in proposal. So it's really smart how you're getting ahead of that. 
when you get into a proof of concept with a prospect, how do you structure that to succeed for yourself? I've always used mutual action plans. And the idea is that um, I want to constrain the a proof of concept to a certain length of time. I don't want someone tire kicking for six months. I don't want someone tire kicking for three months. I want them to take a look at uh, at the product, um, accomplish a few things. Um, so we, we can give a, a plan that has uh, use cases. Say, you're going to use the product and you'll get this value out of it and we'll prove it with these metrics. Um, and one of the key things about, uh, especially a new space, like data observability is not something that most people have budgeted for at this point. Um, it's not something that, so when we're going to, for a purchase, we're going up and asking um, a chief data officer or a CIO for additional budget that they hadn't planned for. Uh, what that means is that we've not only do we have to prove the technical superiority of the product that yes we can tell you that uh, there's a data quality issue um, in a given data warehouse um, but we also have to link that to business value because the CIO actually doesn't care that the data is bad the CIO cares that uh, the BI dashboard that the president or the CIO CEO has uh, shown to Wall Street is bad or if you've uh, spent a whole bunch of um, machine learning time on expensive GPU resources and turned out the data underlying was uh, mis loaded or incorrect. Those are the kind of things that are business problems that uh, we've got to drive to. Um, um, otherwise, gets lost in uh, in sales cycles. So you end up proving a technical superiority. The CIO goes, that's great that you can monitor this, but why do I care? And so our, it's really important for us to, to identify these use cases during the POV uh, that uh, relate to business value. Yeah, it's really easy, I think, in a proof of concept when you bring in a solution engineer to get really into the weeds and caught up going down rabbit holes. How do you prevent that from happening and and, and bring it back to the metrics and the goals? Because I've seen a lot of these where it just it gets really nerdy and then yeah. drags on forever. So when that, that kind of scenario comes up, how do you deal with it? Yeah, it's kind of a delicate balance because what I've seen is that um, there are some companies where all you have to do is actually have technical superiority or some technical value, and there is a certain level of signing authority that you know an architect or uh, someone um, someone technical can sign off on. The the thing that I look for in um, these kinds of scenarios is uh, what's the actual rollout plan? Because a lot of times when we speak to an architect, they're like, I need to find the best technology, and oh, I'm going to hand it off to this guy, and he's going to make it actually operational. Where he's going to integrate it into the environment. Um, or she's going to integrate integrate it into uh, the different users that are going to play with it. So we want to we want to help identify that um, upfront. Um, we want to make sure that there's a plan to operationalize. Getting the operational plan in place, uh, we can see how it'll affect daily lives of people moving forward. And that's really where the value comes in when people are actually using the product and getting some some sort of uh, better result out of that. Um, we really focus on trying to find that and trying to help emphasize that during the process um, and tying back to the business value, especially during your wrap-ups, and then arming your champion with uh, something in writing that helps articulate that. So um, you can, they get asked, you know, why am I buying this? They can just forward this uh, document that has the business cases in it. And in your experience at Big Eye and Armory, how long should these programs run for? Like how long's too long? I find that the ideal proof of concept should be less than three months. Um, ideally, the actual work should be constrained to a couple of weeks, but it really depends on uh, how many other stakeholders need to be uh, need to be attached to it. For example, uh, to do a data quality proof of concept from a SaaS solution, a lot of the times we've got to get access to uh, a customer's VPC to their uh, 
their cloud instances. So it's not only the data team that needs to, to give us access, but a networking team or a cloud architect. Um, then the, the, data, the DBA has to create a read-only user for us. So there's other dependencies, which is another part of the thing that's really important about putting all these dependencies in a, in a POC plan so that the expectations are set up front that you know we can't do any work until we've got these dependencies done. Um, so I like to constrain the, the actual work uh, to a POV and a plan to uh, two to three weeks uh, at the at the longest. Um, usually that, that turns into a couple more weeks on either side of um, both getting some of the dependencies taken care of and then um, getting the wrap-up meeting scheduled and the executives in the room so that we can uh, expose the uh, the business cases. But ideally, the work should be no more than no more than three or four weeks. Yeah, you mentioned that and earlier how you use mutual action plans because there sounds like there's so many moving pieces here and so many dependencies. Like ultimately, you're getting into somebody's production system or their test environment and you need to bring in you know multiple people. How do you kind of bring all those people together, get them all engaged, keep them engaged and like get these dependencies kind of resolved so that you can get down to doing those two weeks of actual work that proves the value of the product? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we look for when, or that I look for when we're starting a, a proof of concept is a real commitment from the customer that they're actually going to do the work. That's again where the mutual action plan is super useful is that you can actually articulate the bodies of work that need to happen in order to start and then conduct and then wrap up um, a proof of concept. Um, and getting them to agree, yes, these are the things that have to happen before we can even get started. This is what's going to happen after we get started. These are the steps we're going to go through and the use cases we're going to solve and then the result, the expected results from those. And then uh, scheduling the wrap-up meetings. I like to do um, regular meetings while we have the POV. One of the things I usually ask for is a weekly well, is a weekly sync on the status, um, and then separate working sessions. Um, what I find is that um, the account executive can serve as a great project manager during the weekly sync meetings, and then let the uh, technical people go off and earn their own levels of trust and learn more about the account um, in the working sessions. If we kind of change direction here a little bit. And, you know, we talked about discovery and how you want to capture everyone you're talking to uh, so that, you know, maybe you can go back to them later. How do you prospect? What's what's worked best for you in this kind of early stage role, first sales leader? What do you find yourself going back to time and time again? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Probably the the one of the weakest things that I have is prospecting. Uh, a lot of people that have come up in sales have been uh, either SDRs or BDRs and have um, gone out and really done the outbound prospecting themselves. It's it's not a role that I've had. So, and I actually think this is one of the things that I am the weakest at. What I what I have found in the past is that. Um, there's a certain volume of communication and touch points that have to happen before someone can be interested. Um, what I found is that most buyers of technology solutions are being bombarded by different things. And um, there is unfortunately a volume of communication that has to happen before something really resonates with somebody. And it has to be something along the lines of, you know, I'm thinking about solving a problem or this this problem is keeping me up at night. And, oh, I, I've gotten a message from someone that says something about that happens to resonate with that problem, you know, then you'll get a response. Um, historically, that's been easy to do via email or via LinkedIn. And what I've found over the past even year and a half or so is that email open rates have gone so low that people just end up deleting uh, most outgoing email. And we're, we're really struggling unless someone has opted into a newsletter or something like that to get people to, uh, to actually uh, raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm interested in that. What I find is that uh, having a, a really compelling, like really mildly gated demo that 
you can actually get your hands on the product and a compelling website is certainly helpful. Um, what I also find is that with very technical solutions like a data quality solution, um, the people that we're selling to are not really used to being sold to and don't actually, it's, it's a huge step for them to actually want to talk to someone live. So getting them uh, the ability to have their hands on either a product or a solution uh, some way, shape or form using um, either the actual live product if it's set up for that or something that allows you to click around in it like a Nevada or something like that, that you can record a demo and let them play with it really helps. Oddly enough, we've actually found that uh, phone call that phone calls, um, hopefully to people's landlines, um, are um, very effective in getting meetings set. And in fact, it's the only way our outbound team right now is is getting meetings set is is by uh, hitting phones and talking to people live and um, hearing about some of their pain um, in a live format. Which I was a little surprised at. I I, I personally don't like getting phone calls and uh, was uh, hoping there was another way, but um, it seems to be working for us at this point yeah i'm always amazed that the phone still works as a prospecting tool like it worked for salesforce in 2005 you know they cold call people and said hey software you can buy you know but i think in you know in those days like the it was normal you had a phone on your desk and you answered it because it might be your boss calling or colleague calling but as uh, phones have disappeared from desks and then people have disappeared from offices it's it's still like uh, fascinating that uh, the phone the phone still works my team yeah. also has quite a lot of success on the phone i was talking to a founder of a completely different business in the you know healthcare um, sector where uh, his business is having a lot of success on the on the phone as well so i think it's really really interesting there i've also found that I have a pretty decent sized network at this point. And one of the things that I've had to do uh, and get out of my comfort zone a little bit is just to roll up my sleeves and be a salesperson or be my own SDR, which is uh, reaching out to my own network and, and talking to the people that are in there and asking them for introductions to the data team. At, at the end of the day, it's the same kind of it's the same kind of thing that you're doing in, in any kind of sales role, which is um, w- which is truly believing that the solution you have has some value and that you're not bothering people to ask about it. You're actually bringing them a solution that can bring them uh, some real value and real help in their day. So um, I found that reaching out to uh, to colleagues or people that I've worked with that are adjacent to data teams or things like that is actually very, very effective, especially if I have like a two or three sentence value blurb that I can say, hey, I know you're not the right buyer for this, but if you know someone in the data team that's struggling with data quality, Here's a couple of sentences about um, the value that my solution brings. If you could reach out to them, let them know that this solution exists, and if they're interested, have them reach out. Um, that's been very effective as well. Yeah, you mentioned that blurb. It, it's a really good discipline, I think, for uh, a sales leader to do a little bit of their own prospecting because it forces you to look at your sales materials and your your value prop and go, wait a minute, if I got this, what would I think? And get more comfortable with um, with describing your product in a way that customers care about. Let's talk about team. Uh, sure. Hey, you've cut, you come in. Uh, what does the team generally look like when you come into a founder-led sales organization? And and how do you think about growing the team? What I normally think about is uh, is scale. Like if we can create a predictable sales motion where we're talking about deals in the same way, um, how do we cre- uh, create a repeatable sales motion out of that? What what I found is that 
oftentimes when I come in, founder-led selling is just not repeatable. You're doing something very, very custom for each and every customer, and it's different. Um, what can we distill out of that to create consistency around? What are the patterns that we're seeing? What are the uh, the things that we're um, observing that the the market is demanding? Whether you know it's vertical specific or size of company specific or uh, stage of company specific? What are the things that are starting to work? Usually the first few hires I make are going to be technical in the space. They're going to have um, a decent amount of knowledge. They might come from either a competitive or adjacent space that have been selling into, selling into and they have some contacts or know some of the buyers and the way that products in the space are bought. Um, so for example, a lot of the early salespeople that I've looked at um, hiring here at Big Eye have uh, sold to data engineers or to uh, data analysts or to people who work with data on a daily basis and have a good understanding of how they think. Um, and I usually uh, orient more toward, and in this in this role, I've certainly oriented uh, towards early stage uh, account executives that may, may not have had uh, you know, 20 years of experience of selling, but um, that are still uh, hungry and excited to make a huge impact on organizations um, and remember how to prospect and remember how to roll up their sleeves and just get a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of grinding done. Cause that's really what sales is at the start. It's, it's a lot of uh, going through the motions. Yeah. So you mentioned that like hiring people uh, into sales roles who understand the customer and understand the stage of company. Um, I think those two things are so important. You know, you got to be able to talk to a customer in a way that they're used to being talked to. And you need to understand like what is normal at series B or mm -hmm. series A. You know, if you're coming from a public company or a, you know, even a unicorn, like it's so, so different. And I, I think that one of the biggest reasons that people struggle in early stages they're just not ready for how unready the business is <laughs> from uh, you know how, how kind of messy things are you know i've had a kind of like was come in and ask for the the case studies and the glossies and the uh, uh and all the documentation about things and be very surprised when that stuff doesn't exist or exists in a uh, a google doc somewhere um, that doesn't have a logo on it for example um i think that uh sales it's easy for sales people to get really spoiled by the sales enablement organizations at large companies yeah it's like oh you want case studies go sell a deal and then tell yeah. the next customer about it or uh you want enablement uh here's google slides off you go you really need to have that kind of scrappy like you said hungry and excited to make an impact because when there's nothing there you can make an impact i think that's the exciting thing about joining an early stage company as an ae especially if you understand the domain understand the customer the sales pitch will, will come naturally and it's just learning the the process what do you think founders should think about to get the best out of their first sales leader? The first sales leader has to sell. So it, it, they can't hire someone that's a pure process person. They can't hire someone who doesn't have the ability to learn the space very, very quickly. And, and they can't hire someone that it can only rinse and repeat. The initial sales leader has got to actually build out a sales motion and transition away from what's working. So if I go in and just try to do what the founders did, I'm probably going to fail because I don't have the credibility. I don't have the deep experience that a lot of founders do. And I, I, I won't have the ability to connect with my buyers in the same level. Um, I have to be better at distilling out a, a, a consistent business value and uh, being able to create repeatability out of a new motion that the founders are not doing. So that person has to be creative, they have to be technical, um, and they have to be uh, really good communicators. The, one of the things that founders oftentimes struggle with is like, how are, actually, how are things actually going? 
And uh, early stage sales leaders, the more uh, the more you can over communicate how things are going, the less the founders are going to try to micromanage you. I've seen that where founders sort of get get a bit frustrated with the first sales hire. Uh, and I think, you know, you said that communication is key. What are the things that a first sales leader should be communicating to the founder on a, on a regular basis to kind of get ahead of that frustration? The most important thing is what's working and what's not. Um, is it product? Is it the market? Is it uh, messaging? Is it uh, the hiring process? What are the things that are blocking you? So what, what I like to do is figure out uh, what's not working first and then start looking at what is working. So what are the, first of all, what are the, th- the roadblocks to success? Uh, and get those articulated and make some real progress on some of those issues. Um, And then figure out what is working, what is selling, what is, uh, what are people excited about, create more momentum around those things. Um, The, uh, like I mentioned, reporting, um, one of the things that is really helpful for a lot of founders is actually being able to access as much data as they can uh, at their fingertips. So without having to ask someone, um, I've had, there's a lot of benefit of having good CRM discipline and it doesn't feel like it, but when when your founder goes in and sees a bunch of deals that don't make sense and then asks you about it, uh, you as a sales leader will, will instantly lose credibility. Setting expectations as to what, how accurate the CRM is going to be, uh, what kind of cadence of updates are going to see, and, and what uh, and the ways that you want the founders to pull information out of that, and what uh, assumptions to make um, are really important things to set up early. Having done this a few times now, what are the biggest things that you think first-time sales leaders get wrong? Trying to emulate the, exactly the founder's motions, um, hiring people that are uh, either not hungry enough or complacent or not creative enough to succeed in an early stage of chaotic startup, not hiring with enough domain knowledge. So um, the first few sales calls end up going poorly because the people can't earn trust with their buyers. Going too broadly with a product that's not ready for market. I've certainly seen that before. Uh, being able to uh, not being able to give realistic feedback or consistent feedback to uh, the product team. Like I never want to see uh, a sales team completely lead the product direction, um, but there certainly has to be feedback and input into uh, the product team's direction and how they make decisions on building the product. A lot of times. Uh, in early in sales, the sales cycles with early stage companies, uh, you are selling promises and delivering on those promises will help you get more sales and more references. So um, having a tight coupling, um, I've seen sales leaders uh, butt heads really hard with product teams. And I just think that's a huge mistake. Yeah. You, you got, you mentioned some really, uh, <laughs> some things in there that I've definitely seen and, and been through myself. The one about kind of going too broadly with a product that's not ready. Uh, it's often like a founder's like, everyone should buy this product. And and your sales team's just sort of like, nobody, no, 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 it's not ready. Like, <laughs> I think that that's a really big one. And then also like having to sell the future. Because like you said, the founder's always selling the future because they're selling themselves. I mean, to a customer, to an investor, they're just always selling the future. Whereas a salesy, you got to sell the present. And especially as an AE, you're just like, I, I can't sell the future. I'm an AE. Yeah. I just tell me what I've got to sell. And you know, when you're working with a founder, what have you found sort of, you know, founders come in all shapes and sizes and, and all types of personalities. And let's face it, the reason they're founders is because they have incredible desire to push through the most impossible problems. But then when you're like an employee working for them, it can be kind of quite intimidating. And, and, and having, you know, having been through that a few times now, what, how have you kind of managed that dynamic? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the key things is interviewing the founders and looking for enough humility to allow be allowed to do your job. I think one of the hardest things about uh, transitioning from founder-led selling to uh, a sales leader and an enterprise sales team is actually letting go, letting go of the process. And I've seen a lot of companies really stumble that they might get from zero to a million dollars of ARR really quickly, and then things start to become unsaleable, um, unscalable. So they bring in a sales leader and like, okay, your job is go to one to ten, go. But then they don't actually give that person enough uh, leeway or or um, the the uh, enough space to get their their work done and to do things and. And the founders uh, clamped down and they want things done exactly the way they were doing it because that's what worked. That's a really dangerous situation. So certainly interviewing for enough humility to admit that they're not an expert in all functions. Most founders are jacks of all trade. They can do a little bit of everything and just well enough to get this company off the ground. Um, but then they have to be willing to bring in leaders who have done this and who uh, are experts in their space uh, and, and let, give, them the, uh, give them the reins to do uh, their work the best way that they know how. It's a really key thing to interview for is enough humility to say, hey, I, I got the company to this point and you know, it's amazing that I did, but now I need to hire an expert to really scale this function. Yeah, the humility is so, so important. I love the way you said looking for enough humility to be allowed to do your job. I think that describes it really well. You also mentioned they're like, oh, they got it from zero to one and they're like, hey, get it from one to 10. Um, <laughs> as we all know, like, you know, growth doesn't happen in straight lines. What advice would you give to a sales leader, like in the role for the first time, coming up with a plan that's achievable? Like we all get unrealistic sales targets at some point in our lives. And you know, how, how have you learned from that? And, and what advice would you share for someone getting into that for the first time? Yeah, I think one of the hardest things to do um, in, on the journey from one to 10 is actually attributing the amount of sales uh, on a per headcount basis. So building out a model that says, look, I'm going to give people a million dollar quota, for example. And if uh, if an average AE hits 85% of their quota, I'm going to get roughly 850 of um, uh, I'll get roughly 850 of um, revenue contribution from each person, but then they need a, a ramp time to learn the product and to start developing leads. And you're going to have attrition. Um, so building a model that really uh, articulates the capacity of the team based on the size and based on the contribution from each uh, each person, and then tying that uh, with the, the correct uh, additional functions. How many uh, sales engineers am I going to need for a very technical product? You mentioned like they're also like building a headcount model and, and sort of showing like the supporting cost, CSMs, I would imagine enablement, revenue operation, sales ops, what you want to call it. How do you kind of reconcile it with uh, having enough leads coming in? Yeah, I mean, I always look for. I, I always look at a waterfall graph. Like, what are the conversion rates from the total number of leads that we've lo loaded into the system to the number of things that are marketing qualified, to the number of things that are sales qualified, to uh, the the actual opportunities we can create out of sales qualified leads. So, looking at conversion rates, then you can um, then you can work backward from the, you know if I need to do a million dollars of net new ARR this quarter, this is how many um, opportunities I need to create at the beginning of the quarter, and work Working backward from the opportunities, this is how many leads that I'm, I'm going to need based on the historical conversion rates. Now, of course, in the early stages, this is a this is really law of small numbers that they can heavily vary, and those conversion rates are going to change quite a bit. But I've always found it's better to put a stake in the ground based on the data that you have than to just guess. Using the data that you have, you can always look at the marketing funnel. You can always look at uh, what's actually been happening and make predictions based on that. That's uh, yeah, it's so true. Like the, <laughs> I really like what you said there. You put a stake in the ground. 
And then you just kind of measure the variance to it and and learn and, and figure out, like you said, what's working, what's not working, and and just kind of iterate. Kit, Kit I feel like I, I want to ask you like another hour of questions. You know, you're just a mine of information here for early stage sales leaders, but we are running out of time. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck building Big Eye over the coming year. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you.